Good evening. I'm Jama Raubach, a partner here at Mercy View. Our scripture reading tonight is Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Thank you, Jama. Good evening. Good to see you. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Brad, one of the pastors here. And man, we are so glad that uh, you're here this evening. Sorry for the heat. Uh, out of our control, but... Uh, We'll be all right, right? We'll survive. We'll make it through here this evening. You've already done half of the service, so we just got another half. You guys are going to be just fine, I'm sure. Uh, I remember um, the very first moment that I became a father. It was a really special deal um, for me, and uh, become a father many times over um, by by the grace of God. And um, Father's Day. For you, if you're a father, have children, uh, it's a special day. This has been a special day for me already, receiving cards and love from my children. And um, I know for many of you here, though we are a young church, there are a lot of children around. So there's a lot of dads, new dads around. This is a really special day. And I hope you've had a good Father's Day so far. If you're a father here tonight, I want to say to you, Happy Father's Day. Um, some of you, you are maybe pregnant for the first time. Maybe you're getting ready to become a dad for the first time. That's so special. Um, for some of you, as you just think about your own fathers, your fathers are still with you and you have a good relationship with them. That is an awesome thing, a real blessing, honestly. Um, some of you are uh, just, you're, you're good dads. You had a good dad growing up. You're just thankful. This is like a good day for you. But... It uh, should be said that on a day like today, for some that are here tonight, I'm sure this can also be a difficult day. Uh, those uh, maybe are, are, are some here that are struggling with something like infertility, desiring to be a father, desiring to be parents and unable to do so up to this point. Some of you have lost a child in some way. Uh, that's heartbreaking. Some of you have dads right now who are really sick, um, those that are just not doing well and that weighs heavy on you today. Some of you have had fathers just even pass away from last Father's Day to this one. Uh, some of you who have lost your fathers even before then, this is just a difficult day because you remember your dad. Some of, of you today, this day is difficult because you have a strained relationship with your father. So we recognize here tonight that for some, this is a beautiful day, a great day. For some, this is a difficult day. For some of, it's, uh, of us, it's a little bit of both, right? And so I just want to take a moment and pray for you um, as we think about this day and ask the Lord to uh, just be with our hearts. So let's pray. God, we do thank you that for many of us here this evening, this is a very special day. Our fathers um, are with us. We have good relationships with them. Um, they are still with us. Maybe we're getting ready to be a dad for the first time. Many of us are just dads. We have children, and uh, this is just a special day to, to be reminded of, of the, the blessing of fatherhood. But we do recognize that this day is also very challenging for those in different ways. And we want to ask, God, that you would comfort them in the midst of what could be a very discomforting day, that you would come near to them and show them that you, as their heavenly father, are a father who will never leave them, 
never forsake them. You desire to be near to the brokenhearted, and you are a good father. And I pray, Lord, that uh, if there is opportunity for relationships to be restored, um, Lord, that you would even provide a pathway for that as well. But, Lord, we do remember today that you are, as our Heavenly Father, the best dad that we could ever have, Abba Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. Well, I'll never forget um, where I was the very time that I saw, uh, really it was the second plane uh, that hit the second tower. If many of you remember uh, on September 11th, Uh, we didn't see in real time that first plane hit that first tower because it was so unexpected. Uh, No one was covering that, but they were covering it after that and, of course, covering then when the second plane hit. I was standing in a little bitty apartment in Brentwood, Tennessee, about a month away from having our first child, Cooper. And I just remember thinking, like, how in the world are we bringing our, a child into this kind of world with this sort of thing that could just happen like this unannounced? I remember feeling that sense of, of um, sadness and grief immediately. And for those of you that, that lived through that and, and remember that, um, you know how it galvanized a nation almost immediately. Um, our hearts were collectively broken over what had happened, over the lives that were lost. I remember one of the most vivid things for me were those scenes of these walls of of pictures of of family members who were trying to find a, a loved one that they had lost and couldn't find, and it would just stretch on and on and on. It was utterly heartbreaking. But if you also remember, because I experienced this emotion too, amidst the grief, amidst the sadness, was anger. What was that anger for? Well, I believe it's because as we began to learn about who precipitated this attack, uh, we began to, to realize that the aim of those individuals were to kill innocent Americans. We were angry collectively as a country because our fellow Americans were murdered. But I've, I've wondered this a lot since that time last year. I think we, was that the 20th anniversary, right, of, of 9-11? I've wondered all this time, how did we know that this attack that killed almost 3,000 people was wrong? Like, how could millions of people in a diverse country like the United States all agree that this act of terror against these individuals was wrong? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the commandment that we're looking at this evening, the sixth commandment. And as we do that tonight, I want to invite you to see two things. First, Christians are called to cultivate a culture of life. 
Christians are called to cultivate a culture of life. And then secondly, Christians are called to cultivate a heart of love towards everyone. Christians are called to cultivate a heart of love towards everyone. Now, before we jump into uh, Exodus 20, verse 13, I actually want to take you back a, a book before Exodus, the book of Genesis. And I want to help us wrap our heads around really the, the first instance that we see where God speaks to the issue of, of, the, uh, of life, of, of, of valuing life. And you don't have to turn there, but in, in Genesis <clears throat> chapter 9, uh, we really begin to see a framework to help us understand this really thorny commandment, actually. Right after God floods the earth and, and he's judging mankind for their sin, God does something after all of that that really is in a lot of ways very counterintuitive. He reminds Noah of the preciousness of life. Here's what he says. He says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from his fellow man, whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So God says to Noah, and, and again, by proxy, he says this to us, the price for taking a life is life. If you take a life, God is saying here, you must pay with your life. But I want you to notice why God says this right there tucked in verse 6 he says for God made man in his own image see human life is precious because we are made in the image of God and to be in God's image means that we reflect certain aspects of who God is now all of creation to some extent does that but the the but humanity, mankind in particular, reflects God's glory in a unique way. Um, and it's because of that that you and I have incredible value. That's why God can say human life is precious because he's saying you're made in my image. So think of it this way. When you think of men and women as anything less than the image of God, you are then devaluing life. But if you are seeing men and women, hum humanity is made in the image of God, you are properly valuing human life. Are you with me? All right. So this brings us to our commandment today. You shall not murder. Now, when it comes to the Hebrew word that's translated here, in the ESV, which is what we use here at Mercy View, there's actually not an exact correlation between the word murder in our English language. In fact, in the old KJV, this word is translated as kill. Thou shalt not kill. If you grew up in a church that used the King James Version, you may remember that the Sixth Commandment, that's, what it, that's how it was said. Thou shalt not kill. But for us in English... Um, we usually think differently about those two words, right? Kill and murder aren't synonymous, necessarily. 
Kill is a broader category. Murder it tends to be more narrow than that. And when it comes to the Hebrew word here in verse 13 of Exodus 20, it is sort of between those two words. It means something narrower than our word kill, but broader than our word murder. So, for a working definition tonight, let's use this um, to define what this word murder means in verse 13. It means this. The ending of life that is unlawful or forbidden, whether it is intentional or accidental. Again, the ending of life that is unlawful or forbidden, whether it is intentional or accidental. So let's just talk real quickly about the very first part of that definition. This is really where the meaning is narrower, uh, narrower than kill. This commandment does not mean that we do not kill in any kind of way whatsoever. Because we saw, just saw in Genesis 9, the origins of what you and I today would call capital punishment. And there are other scenarios where the ending of a life is lawful for things like lawful war or necessary defense, self-defense, or even things like the death penalty, even though those things in our culture and even within Christianity, there's a debate about all those things. The Ten Commandments, though, is not, the Sixth Commandment is not talking about those things. It is saying that whether on purpose or by accident, You and I should never end an innocent life. Now, let's talk about what is included in this commandment. And I really think it can be summed up in two words. And we've sort of said it in different ways already tonight. And it's it's this. Respect life. Respect life. Or said another way, this may be more familiar with us in our culture today. Christians must cultivate a view of the sanctity of life. Now, the larger catechism, it's a, a tool that churches have used through the years to help understand the Christian faith. They actually asked the question, uh, uh, what is the sixth commandment? They ask a lot of questions in the larger catechism, but one of the things they do is they go through all the commandments. And one of the questions is, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment and here's what the answer is to that question in the larger catechism to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of the life of any this is what is at the heart of the sixth commandment If you're beginning to notice, it's far more than simply refraining from striking another person down in violence, okay? The sixth commandment is actually about cultivating a respect for life. Here's the first thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. Christians are called to cultivate a culture of life. Why do we say it that way? Well, in part... Um, You and I, we may not name it this way, but we live in a culture of death. In other words, we live in a culture which doesn't promote life, but rather is okay, seems to be okay, promoting death. Now, 
One of the things that tonight I want to do as we think about promoting life, uh, cultivating a culture of life, is we need to understand that there are things in our culture that you and I, in order to promote a culture of life, have to stand against. And so as we think about this, it should be no mystery that one of the things we as Christians need to be uh, very aware of and speak into is the issue of, of abortion. Uh, there are going to be some other things we're going to talk about here, but Christians should be joyfully and vocally pro-life. Psalm 139 is probably the most important text for discussing the sanctity of life. It's not the only text, but it's one of the most important. Because in that psalm, David praises God for his creation, like David himself, being created in his mother's womb. Theologically, I think that that psalm leaves absolutely no doubt that the child in the womb is a human being. Our God is deeply and actively involved in our creation. If you're here this evening, he was actively involved in your creation, in your mother's womb, which means this. Theologically, life begins at conception. So, as Christians who are openly pro-life, our first response to this issue should be prayer. We must pray that God would end the injustice of abortion. We must pray for our complicity in, in it, like for forgiveness. We've been indifferent or apathetic to the issue. We must pray that those who are in positions of power would be convicted to change things. We, we may be seeing some of that happening right now. But after praying, you and I also must participate. And there are going to be different ways that we're going to be called to participate, but um, we should be taking action on our prayers. You can do some simple things like write to your elected representatives clearly, respectfully, laying out why you believe this practice should stop. You can also get involved with things like crisis pregnancy centers. And as the church, we must not say of abortion, this is killing, without saying to pregnant women, we will also serve you. We must listen and love and foster and adopt and give money and babysit and donate supplies and mentor young women and support in whatever ways God has, has equipped us to do and has called us to do as we come alongside, particularly young women. Now, I want to say a word here. If you're here this evening and you have participated in an abortion in some way, I actually have good news for you. You can experience the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus despite your actions. Though you still may feel grief, sorrow for what you have done, there is comfort available to you from the Father of mercies. See, Jesus enters into our broken world and gives comfort when we deserve condemnation. He gives mercy and grace when 
we deserve condemnation. He gives peace where we withhold it. He gives us mercy whenever we don't give it away ourselves. And I I don't know if that's your story tonight. I don't know. If it is, I don't know it, okay? But the Lord Jesus does. He knows where you've been, what you've done, and His grace is enough. His grace is always enough to cover every transgression and give comfort in its place. So I want to ask you to look to Jesus. Find comfort in Him. And and then maybe because of what you've walked through, begin to give your comfort to others who need it too. who are walking a similar path. There are other things that you and I must do in order to be Christians who are cultivating a a culture of life. We, we, We have to speak against things like euthanasia, genocide, even things like genetic testing that leads to a form of eugenics. We, there are things that are swirling around us in our culture that, that <clears throat> are strengthening a culture of death. And for you and I as Christians, we are called to participate in ways to, to help our culture see that life comes from God and every person is valuable. And some of you, just like I said on the issue of abortion, you may be called to participate in public ways to promote that sort of pro-life position. And as you do that, as Christians, we're also called to, to do that with real care and respectfulness, while at the same time, real clarity and real truthfulness. We must be vigilant to not lose our Christian distinctiveness in being a culture of life because somehow the way we go about doing that we lose the 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 very people we want to reach are you with me in that right so there's a way to be truthful and clear but also loving and respectful and we've got to find a way to do both of those things in order to pursue a public and vocal pro-life position or we will lose our intended audience Christians are called to cultivate a culture of life. Now, with the rest of our time this evening, I actually want to get at what I think is at the heart of this commandment. And it's something that uh, I think if we were to stop here just tonight, we would say, well, Brad, I, I'm like, I'm not a killer. I'm not interested in murdering anyone. I'm, I'm surely good. We feel like we're let off the hook. Not so fast, actually. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in... Uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says this, You have heard it said that it was uh, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If you're familiar with these words, you know that that Jesus is... um, taking the idea of anger and really showing us that anger is a sign of something inside of us that looks a lot like the, the sixth commandment. In fact, if you look at the first half of verse 22, it means that having anger towards others that desires their physical harm is to have a murderous spirit. 
You might say, well, why does it matter what I want as long as I don't act on it, Brad? You know, like I may think it, I may feel it, but if I don't actually act out on it, what's really wrong with that? Because your desires are the real you. When you desire someone's harm, you are guilty of murder in your heart. That's what Jesus says. So I'm wondering tonight, do you have a list of people in your head that you wish would just disappear? Or be out of your life? Who is it that you'd love to see fall flat on their face and be humiliated? Do you ever fantasize about telling so-and-so off? Who do you gossip about with your best friends? Those are all evidences, friends, of a murderous spirit. Sure, you may never act on it, but the poison is in there. The cancer of this wickedness is in your soul. I've actually heard some commentators say, that what Jesus is trying to say is that this is in many ways the very first step to acting on it. If you don't catch it here, it could lead to that. Now, when Jesus says this, I know for me, it falls on my ears this way. It's like, really? Jesus? You are saying that if I have anger or a sense of of uh, disdain for someone else in my heart that that is a murderous spirit and sometimes we just need to say what Jesus says because the answer to that question is yes now in the second half of verse 22 of Matthew 5 Jesus continues and says this and whoever insults his brother or says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Jesus connects the idea, thinking of people as anything less than the image of God, that that is a type of murderous spirit as well. So he's even pressing down even more. He's saying it's not just even anger, it's how you think about and talk about and feel about other people. If you're insulting them, whether openly or in your heart, you are not recognizing them as the special creation of God that they are. Right? This is where we started in Genesis 9. This is part of what God is trying to remind us here. It, people, human beings, are made in the image of God. Um, some of you may know the story of, of the, the Nazi by the name of Adolf Eichmann. Um, he was known, actually to have had a fairly good relationship with his kids. He was supposedly a pretty decent husband. In fact, when the Jewish commandos captured him finally, they had a really hard time understanding how in the world this guy could have done what he did. He seemed like a normal guy. It was just that in his heart. He had a hatred for Jews and devalued them so much so to the point that they weren't individuals that it led him to participate in one of the worst atrocities mankind has ever known. Here's the second thing I want to invite you to see this evening. 
We're called to a different posture of the heart. Christians are called to cultivate a heart of love towards everyone. So here are some questions we need to wrestle with tonight. What groups of people do you look down upon rather than look to them as individuals made in the image of God? What groups of people do you think of as less than you? Like when I say the poor community or the refugee community or the African-American community or the Latino community or the homosexual community, fill in the blank, whatever kind of community, what bubbles up inside of you? Do you see them as sinners to stay away from? Do you see them as a political grouping? Do you see them as a group that deserves the, the bad fortunes that they are receiving? Or do you see them as made in the image of God as you are? When we think of people who are different than us with scorn and disrespect and even hate, Friends, Jesus says that is a murderous spirit. You and I have been called to a higher standard. A standard of love towards everyone. Now look, this doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to agree with everything that someone else may be doing or may they may believe or how they may be living, but it does mean that we find a way to love them despite the differences. So we need to think about this tonight like, is there something in our hearts that causes us to think of another group of people or another person as something less than? And if so, we need to repent of that. We need to ask for the Lord's help to see everyone as made in the image of God. Again, that doesn't mean that there won't be things that I may disagree with that other person about. But what Jesus is pressing on here is, what is my heart posture towards them? Is it, am I for them? Like, do I, do I want to see them flourish and thrive in their life? And, or, or do I want to see the opposite of that? Jesus is saying, if our heart tends to like want to see them fall... That is the spirit of, of murder in our own hearts. It's a strong word, right, from Jesus. Friends, this, I think, is what is at the heart of the sixth commandment. God is calling us away from a heart attitude that he would say really is a murderous spirit as we think about how we treat other people, how we love other people, how we think of other people. We are called to cultivate a heart of love towards everyone. So at this point, if you're like me, um, there's like nowhere to turn, right? Like you're like, okay, I, I know I'm guilty of this commandment, breaking this commandment, even in my own heart. Let me just say that in a way, the point of the Ten Commandments, the point of the Sixth Commandment tonight, is that very point. It's for you to look at it and go, I don't measure up. 
you may have heard this said in this series already, but the Ten Commandments are meant to be a mirror. What does that mean? It means that as you look into the mirror of the law, you see a true reflection of God's character and glory. But in the commandments, we also see a true image of ourselves, and it's not pretty. When we look into the mirror of the law, we quickly see that we fall short. In fact, in the book of James in the New Testament, he says that for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Friends, that is us. We have all failed in keeping the whole law. We do not measure up to God's standard of holiness and perfection. So what does this have to do with the sixth commandment for us tonight? Well, where you and I were guilty of breaking it. Jesus is the only one who has ever fully obeyed it. He did not murder, not even in his own heart. He lived a perfect life of love towards others, but in the end, he was murdered. He was executed. He was killed. The Bible says that this happened because he was suffering our death penalty. The wages of our sin was death. It should have been our death, but he stood in our place condemned so that we would not have to die. And it was his murder. Rather than crying out for vengeance like the very first murder we see in the Bible in Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel, the blood of Jesus cried out for our salvation. And here's what happens when you're a recipient of that kind of love. When you realize that you were one who was rescued from that, your heart will start to change. You can live out the sixth commandment much better when you realize that, man, I have been rescued and redeemed from the ways that I don't live up to the law. And as the one who gave his life to rescue you, he can change your heart so that instead of being hateful and exploiting other people, thinking other people are less than, you could become a loving and sacrificial person. Rather than having a heart that just wants to use people, take from them, punish them, you'll find that you want to love people. You want to serve people. You want to forgive them the way that Jesus loved and served and forgave you. You live for others as Jesus lived for you. Friends, because of Jesus, we can cultivate a culture of life as Christians and through the church and making that presence known in our culture. But it also produces a heart of love towards everyone. Praise be to God. Let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father.